Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Beyond excited to have one of the most talented people on the planet, Marissa Jarrett Winokur. She's a Tony Award-winning actress for her role as Tracy Turnblad in Hairspray, the first winner of Celebrity Big Brother, cancer survivor, health advocate, wife, mother to Zev, one of my best friends. She was born with a voice like Ethel Merman when she came out of the womb. Probably the most honest, funny, and loving person on the entire planet. Welcome, Marissa Jarrett. Hello, thank you. Gosh, so many things. So many things about me. So many. <laughs> so, many. so many. And all I feel like is I'm just Zev's mom. So that's it's nice uh-huh. to be reminded that I do other things. That's awesome. And as I said to you, Susie talks about you so much. I felt like I have known you forever, but it's oh. uh, it's really a pleasure to finally meet you. You as well. She talks about you as much probably to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, you are a cancer survivor, as Susie said. Do you mind telling us about your journey? Yeah, I actually, um, I had one of those, like, I always call it the, like, the silver lining of getting the pap smear, like my sister and I made a, like a deal with each other. We said the first person who gets a pap smear buys the other one lunch. You know, it was like whoever gets it first, the other one gets, you know, you have to, you get a free lunch. So uh, I raced in because we were about a, you know, a year overdue when we were in our 20s. And I went in, got a pap smear. And literally the next day they were like, you need to come back. You have abnormal cells. I was 26. I was, you know, sitting alone in my studio apartment in in Hollywood, just being like the clothes, you know, literally feeling like the walls just like closed in. And I'm, I can remember that exact moment at the table when they told me that. And then I went in and had, you know, all of the like tests and the biopsies and the co- colonoscopies and all of the things to try to like, where is it? How far is the cancer along? Um, it started in my cervix. It had moved to my uterus. I was 26 years old. I was, you know, single, 26, and had a what's called a radical hysterectomy in 2000, the end of 2000. And it was um, meaning they took my uterus and and my cervix and left my ovaries in hopes that I could have a baby someday, you know, through surrogacy. And at the time, I was like take everything. I just want to live. You know, I was like, don't, you know, I remember the doctor taking me out for lunch and he's like, I'm going to try to do this interesting surgery where we leave part of your uterus. I was like, take my uterus, you know, (laughs) take my uterus, please. No, (laughs) I was like, what are you trying to say? Like an idea of a family that I don't even know what I'm doing yet. I'm 26, you know? So, um, and at the time I was actually in rehearsal like I was doing a reading of Hairspray. We hadn't, you know, it wasn't the proper rehearsals yet. It was more the like, let's read act one. And then six months later, let's read act two. So I have this like, I have a journey. I have my dream is like at the end of this journey, we need to like, I didn't have time to deal with the cancer. Basically, I was just like, I just need to go be, you know, I was so proactive. And I always tell everybody with your health, 
you know, and it's so interesting now with COVID, but just talking about my cancer and not going into COVID, my being proactive is the most important thing. And that's what saved my life because I, I was proactive. I did follow up with my doctors. So I had the radical hysterectomy. And then six months later, I started the proper rehearsals for hairspray. And I didn't tell anybody that I had just had cancer, that I was, you know, still doing all my checkups. I still had all these like horrible things to go on in my life. But I just, my light at the end of the tunnel was hairspray. You know, I sat in the MRI machines and doing all my CAT scans and everything, like singing the entire show from top to bottom, you know, because I had I had nothing else to do. So I just kept that, that, that dream and that goal was not going to be taken away from me. That's amazing. That is an amazing. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like you learned to be proactive on that journey, but also was there any other huge lesson or lessons that you learned on the road to healing? Yeah, that's a great question. You know what? No one's ever asked me that one, which is so interesting because that feels like such an, a true honest question. My, you know what, for me at that time, I was, I had done a Broadway show prior to Hairspray. I'd done Grease for four years and I just wanted to be a star, you know? Like I was like, I, since I was eight years old, all I wanted was I just want to be a star. I want to be a Broadway star, you know, not TV or film. I wanted to be, I wanted to be Ethel Merman, born, born like Susie said, but that's all I wanted. And then through the cancer journey, it became much less about being a star and just about being, right? So... I always say that there was Marissa before cancer and there was Marissa after cancer because the Marissa before cancer just was like eye on the prize and the prize was the awards and the money and the fame. And then through my cancer journey, it was like, I just wanted to be on that stage. I just wanted to sing those songs. I just wanted to be alive. Right. So the whole idea of fame and fortune literally went away. Like, my whole career after that has been on experiences on, on, well, that sounds fun. I'll try that. And even though my agents are like, why would you want to do that? That seems that's so beneath you. I'm like, because it sounds like a lot of fun, you know, like I did season six of dancing with the stars when everybody, when the, my agents were like, you're, you don't have to do dancing with the stars. You're just, you know, your career's just starting. I'm like, but how fun does that sound? You know? So, so I definitely, after cancer, it wasn't about like becoming the most famous person in the world and making the most money. It was like, I want to have these experiences. I want to live my best life. And it's not about the money or the fame. And that definitely happened through cancer journey. That's amazing. You know, I just want to interject how much people loved you because when you were on Dancing with the Stars, <laughs> they wouldn't send you home. <laughs> no, they wouldn't. You're right. I would cry. Oh my God, JD. I would cry. Be like, please let me go. I was so bad on the show. It was so hard. I wasn't even good. Like I thought I was going to be amazing and I wasn't. And every week the I'd be like, thank you. Thank you. And the elevator would close and I'd be like, they're never going to let me go. They're never letting me leave this show. And I was made it to the final four, you know, it was like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> So we've had a, a, a pandemic, of course. And um, how has your life changed during this pandemic? I know you're sharing, you now have the kitchen, as you said. But, yeah. <laughs> what, you know, what other ways has, uh, has your life changed during this pandemic? Well, I mean, here's the interesting thing. During the pandemic, I, it's like I had to 
I'm a total control freak, which I'm recently learning about myself, is that I like to control everything. And so I couldn't control anything because the pandemic came in and we're, we don't know what's happening. And I mean, I will say that I basically have been telling everybody for the past, you know, 20 years, whoever would listen, like, you're all, we're, there's going to be a pandemic. So I sort of did feel a little like, you know, like, see, I told you this was going to happen. But um, I definitely feel like this pandemic, I, the only thing I could control was myself. I couldn't control my husband. I couldn't control my son. I couldn't control the universe. I couldn't control people not wearing masks. I couldn't control people wearing masks. I couldn't control anything. So I went on this like full journey of, well, I'm going to work out. I'm going to try to like deal with my anxiety in a different way than I normally do. Normally I'm like, I'll take a Klonopin and I'm like, now my anxiety is cured. But I was definitely like, I need to take care of my body because that's the only thing I can be in control of. So I'm sure there's many um, things to be said for that. But I did, I went on a complete healthy, healthy journey of getting healthy. I lost 40 pounds, maybe 50, but I, you know, it wasn't, I truly say it wasn't about losing weight. It was more about like just getting control back in some way and dealing with my anxiety in some way. And that was through food and exercise for me. It's amazing. So question about how it's changed your life. Has Hollywood treated you differently since the weight loss? Oh God, Hollywood's so sick of me. Hollywood is like, like, honestly, like if I went out right now, people wouldn't even know I lost weight loss, right? Like, so my weight like fluctuates so much that like nobody ever knows. I, I leave them guessing all the time. Like, where is she today? You know, like, has she lost weight? Has she gained weight? What does she look like from the waist up? Who cares? You know, like the good news about me is I say that like, I've been, I've had some great success at my heaviest. So people are always like, oh, she lost weight. But nobody's like, oh God, did you see Marissa? Like, I never have to deal with that. So that's the good news. <laughs> um, I mean, like definitely, you know, everybody wanted to hear the story of losing weight and, you know, and then like Rebel Wilson also lost weight. And we, you know, we talked about it a lot together to each other because it's, it is such a personal journey, you know, weight is, it's definitely the one that has more shame based in weight than there is in alcohol or like people would rather hear me say I take Klonopin than I overeat, right? Like they'd rather say like, and no one says like, "Ooh, are you taking too much clonopin?" Nobody cares about that when that should be the that should be a, a thing, right? People care more about, "Oh gosh, are you overeating again? You can't control that." Well, yeah, I can't control that, and sometimes I can't control how much clonopin I take. So, which one's actually more of an issue, right? So, it is an interesting thing for me, I think. Yeah, it is, and I think you know one of the things you said is that uh, you know it's a lifestyle. You're not, you're, you're not obsessing over the way you are invested in a lifestyle and it yeah. has, and I think that's important for people to understand. Yeah. Um, I will say I took my, I have, haven't skied since I was 18, which I can, I'll tell you ladies is 30 years ago. Right. So I mean, think on Instagram, I was like, I haven't skied for 20 years. And then I was like, Oh wait, no, it's been 30 years. Um, <laughs> and I will say like, I went, skiing in Mammoth. I took my son there last weekend and I skied with him for three days. And all I kept saying was, oh my God, I never, I haven't been able to do this for, for 30 years. I was too scared to do this. And there was definitely, that's why I got healthy. You know, that's a, I can put my pin right on that and go, oh, that's why I was able to have this experience with my son 
And I wasn't sitting in the car and I wasn't sitting back at the hotel. I was physically with him and he was screaming, go mom. And it was like, that was, that was truly why I, I can now, as we're moving through this pandemic, go, oh no, I have to stay on this journey because he's only 12. I, I have years to do those things with him. So that was definitely something that I can put my finger on and say, that's why I did it. Not because I looked great in a dress. That's why I did it. Maris, you posted one post that made me cry. And I bet you got so much feedback, which was a year ago, I couldn't even climb upstairs. Yeah. Yeah. I went to Iceland because I'm a big traveler. I like to travel. I grew up that way. My father, we had no money growing up. So, I mean, when I say no money, like I didn't know my dad was doing the credit card shuffle, like one credit card paid off the other credit card. And we, you know, he he would say that it was cheaper to, I lived on the East coast. So to travel to Europe, it was super cheap. And then sometimes there were deals where the hotel would pay for you to, you know, it was like my dad would always find the deal, you know, it was cheaper to be there than to be home. It wasn't, I don't, he went into horrible debt. So don't do that. I, we, I grew up traveling. So my sister and I always travel with our children together because we both have only children. And I went to Iceland and I literally like, I remember being like at the bottom of a flight of stairs and just being like, can't even, I can't believe we're going to have to walk up these stairs. And then we went on a glacier hike and I was, when I say miserable the whole time, I was miserable. I complained. I wanted to stay in the van. I only didn't stay in the van because I didn't want to be like, oh, I'm the fat girl staying in the van. Like my shame got me on that, got me on that glacier walk. And I can't even say like, oh, it was beautiful. I'm so glad I did it. No, I was horribly miserable and out of breath and felt horrible about myself. So, and that was only a year ago. So I think that like our journeys can happen much faster than people think, you know? Right. That is an amazing story. And yes, I'm so happy for you. Um, you. I'm going to shift gears a little bit and talk about the epidemic in the pandemic known as racism and white supremacy. And Uh, you know, communities of color are struggling in ways that I have difficult articulating at times. And in particular, uh, you know, most recent deaths in the Asian, African-American um, and other people of, of color. So I'm wondering, how are you explaining racism and white supremacy to your son? What are those uh, it's hard, you know, because here's an interesting thing. When I was growing up and and this is a good, bad or indifferent, my parents did their best job that they could possibly do with me, right? When I was growing up, they were like, and and I don't know if this was because it was the 70s or if it was because growing up in a Jewish home, it was like, everybody's equal, nobody's different. There is like complete blind, like when I say color blindness, my parents truly were raising us on that, right? And I always thought, well, that's great. Of course, that's the way to do it, right? And and truly believe like, yeah, that's everybody's equal. There's, we shouldn't even... Why are we even talking about it? My parents never talked about it. It was, it, everybody's equal. Like, don't, like, no issues. And then when, and I remember it when gay marriage became legal, I think it was um, to 2000, was it 2010? To, one of the, okay. I think it was, I think that when, I think it was 2010 in my mind, that's when it was, but it could have been 2012. It, around there, when gay marriage became legal, oh no, it was, I'm sorry. It was 2000, it was past that, but and I said to my son, I said, don't anyone tell him because everyone's like, oh, my gosh, how exciting because Zev had only been to gay weddings. Right. So we always said that, like, getting married was the gayest thing you could do, because literally my little boy was in like six gay weddings by the time he was five. Like he didn't even know that 
that there was a, it was a thing, right? And I remember being with my sister and, and I was celebrating that gay marriage is legal now. And I said to her, don't tell Zeb, don't tell Zeb. I don't want him to ever know that it wasn't legal because I didn't want him to think there was anything wrong with it. Why wasn't it, right? Cut to the past year and I really thought about it and I was like, no, that's, that was absolutely wrong. I, and I had like long talks with him, like, you know, there, we, there, there's a, I think we think like, oh, just say everything's okay. And then the kids will be raised with everything's the same. Right. But I, I think it was wrong. Now I look back and I'm like, no, I want him to know that the history of how much we fought for gay rights and how much, like, you know, and I, so that's how I can like, just like talk about with my son. Right. Like, and it's, he goes to a very progressive school. He's out at Sierra Canyon. They talk about it. Everything is very, he's in a phenomenal, diverse um, atmosphere. So there are many school functions that are completely just for, you know, BLM and Stop Asian Hate. Like they have things at the school, thankfully, not, not that I can't do it, but you don't, your parents can never teach you anything except love, right? So it's hard to like, and lead by example. But when you hear that there's different ways to talk about things, I, it's been hard. I mean, it's been hard. And, and, you know, watching a little boy, I mean, I remember when the politics started with Trump, just to begin with, like, when Hillary was debating Trump, and we were all like making fun of Trump at my house, and like, how silly this is, like, can you believe that he thinks he's gonna win? And then I had to tell my like, eight year old son, holy shit, he just won, you know, and it was like, we watched it live on TV, you know, going like, this can't be happening, you know, and, and what does that tell him? Like, it was so too much, because you're like, how do you explain to this child that being a bully and being mean and being cruel and being loud and obnoxious? Yeah, it, being a white supremacist is, yeah. and that was really interesting and tough, you know, and, and, you know, as a Jewish woman growing up, you always were taught never forget, never. I mean, I, I, I literally, it's like, I don't want to make light of it. The Holocaust though was like, we talked about the Holocaust at my house every single day. And, and it wasn't until now going through what we've been through in the last couple of years, watching what we've been watching and seeing what we're seeing and living what we're living. I was like, oh, that's why my parents talked about it so much because they were, they lived it. Like they were, my parents were alive. They were 12 and 13 when, in the, during the Holocaust, you know what I mean? Like they weren't in, you know, Europe, but they were in America and they knew, and I'm like, oh, I could never imagine not talking about what we just went through. Like I have chills like every day with my, if, like if someone was born into the world now, I'd be like, um, wait till you hear what happened 10 years ago. What, wait till you hear and, and just educating. And it's tough. It's hard having a 12 year old during any time. Um, but also during a time where there's, I mean, I want to say where there's so much hate, but there always was hate. We just didn't see it as much, right? So, so I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's been very hard. It's yeah. been very hard. Yeah, I, I can imagine, and, and I'm, I'm curious about, uh, you know, how they are explaining to kids in school. I mean, every three days. Last night, a 13 year old boy was uh, by the police, I think, in Chicago, and. Uh, I know as a professional who's, you know, at the farthest end of my racial identity development, who does this, this work and has this lifestyle, which is what I now refer to it as, um, it's overwhelming. So I'm wondering if schools and teachers are equipped to really have the conversations that are necessary. And so that brings me to the ne next question, which is, 
what I've been asking everyone, which is, you know, what are you doing for your mental health? How are you managing that and, and that of your families? Well, that, I mean, I will say for the, you know, the last two years, prior, leading up to January 16th, my mental health was <laughs> not a good place. Susie will tell you, I mean, I, I, I took on, I took on the election and the debates. And I mean, I, at one point, I literally was like, holy smokes, I got to get off Twitter because I got myself so invested and involved. And I had so much hate running through my veins. I cannot, I mean, I, I, I know everybody listening understands that. Like I, and I felt that like me on my cell phone could fix something, right? You know, uh, and and then dealing with the people who who loved me and thought, you know, thought I was different and how dare I say this? And I'm like, oh no, I still am a, I'm still me. Like I get to still talk about what I want to talk about. And my mental health was really bad. It was really bad for, for the past few years during this, this, this administration, the last administration. Um, and and I, I was not healthy um, at all. Mm. Uh, I will say that um, I lost a friend about a month ago now. And I looked back at like what her last Facebook posts were. And she was young. She was only 51 years old. And, and all of her Facebook, thank you. All of her Facebook posts were like mine, which were basically like, can you believe this happened? And this happened and this happened. And, you know, the last year she was just fighting the government, you know? And I will say, I definitely at that moment was like, oh, I don't, I don't want that to be my last year, like being so filled with rage and hate. So I, I don't know where the happy medium of that is because I think if you're not filled with rage and anger right now with every, the injustice that's going on in the world right now or, or has been going on for, for ever, right? But we're, I, I guess I'm, I'm open enough to know, I did, I'm open enough to be able to say I, I didn't see it as much until I'm now being able to see it, right? So it's hard to figure out where the happy medium is. Of it can't be all consuming, but you can't be blind to it either. So I, I don't. That would be my question of like, how do you, how do you see what's going on and not be full of rage and anger and anxiety, but also try to live an existence where you're not just full of anger. Like I mean, I cry for year I was crying and and still like the events of just this last week I find myself in bed just crying you know and my and my niece my sister adopted a girl she was from China and what she's going through in her school in Albany and I'm just like oh my god there's just so much sadness and anger and hate and I don't know how to put that in one category and still try to have a beautiful afternoon right it's it's hard yeah, it is hard. I, I think, um, in particular as people of color, I am working a lot on social media and talking to people and trying to help people feel supported because I can't separate myself from it. Right. And it is painful. So I appreciate your honest answer. Susie, take over. Okay. With all our car trips and shopping trips to Target and the mall, I've never asked you this question. What are some of the messages, like the prevalent messages that you picked up in childhood about you? Like, what do you mean? Like, like what kinds of messages were in your household about, oh. <laughs> about 
identity, about beauty, about right, right. Like, just what are some of the things you really picked up about yourself? Right. I mean, I definitely, and I mean, crazy enough in all of my wonderful success, I say that like, oh my gosh, both my parents have passed, JD, but I always say, not always, like I think in my own head that, oh my gosh, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to be like, they're going to say to me, what are you doing now? Like, what did you do? Like, while we were gone, what did you do? And I would be like, oh my God, I haven't done enough still, you know? I definitely think like, my parents, they didn't do it on purpose. They weren't like, you better make something out of yourself. Like that was never said. Like, so I, I, as a parent now, I can definitely say I, I put it on myself as a, that's part of who Marissa's, my makeup is. They didn't do it to me as a parent. I can say that, but as a child, I would say that like, oh, I had to do something great to be noticed at my house. Like I was the youngest of four. And if I wasn't, if I didn't figure out what that thing was that I was special at, I was going to be completely like left behind at the, you know, literally left behind. My sister was left behind a couple of times. Um, <laughs> she was left like at literally like at a shoe store. They forgot she was there. Like my, <laughs> and my sister's phenomenal, but she's certainly not, she doesn't have the Winoka um, loudness or yeah. like, I'm like, I'm like my dad in the, and same with my brothers. We're all sort of like, we're here, the loud family. We, we made it. But my sister is not. She's like a, a wonderful, soft-spoken girl. But I definitely think, you know, again, as a parent, I think, no, that was me on my own. You know, that's not their fault. It's not their fault I'm overambitious. It's not their fault I, you know, but it feels like their fault, but it, it wasn't their fault. <laughs> what do you tell people, you and I and JD can appreciate it too, we've all had issues with food, body, identity, all of health, all of that. In fact, Marissa yeah. drove me to rehab. So there's that. Yep. I said, I dropped Susie off at, at rehab. I like bought her an electric blanket, tucked her into bed. And as I walked out, I went, friend her up, boy. <laughs> That was and my- I love a treatment center where like you're never supposed to use words like that. And I hear this bellowing voice, set her up, boys. Set her up, boys. I thought, I don't know. I was so nervous. It was so too much for me. Like I was like, oh, in my little car. Oh my God. But what do you tell people now, Maris, all your fans who ask you, how do I lose weight? How do I get healthy? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I do think like my journeys are, are very similar to everybody else. Like the one thing I have learned in the past is that for weight wise, I'm not special. Like the more you talk about it, the more people will say, yeah, me too. And I, I think that that is the biggest thing. Like, you know, I have a friend who reached out to me about six months ago and, and he's, when I say to you, he's, he's a celebrity, he's the hottest guy. He's like muscular and gets hired because he's so hot. And he was like, Oh my God, your journey is totally inspiring me. I've gone off the wagon. I've, and he's like, can we like talk every day and make sure we're both staying on track? And I was like, Oh, I had no idea you had any food issues, you know? And then you're like, Oh, you have all the food issues. Like I'm like, he makes my food issues seem like totally normal. Right. And the more I post about it, the more people are like, yeah, me too. And you know, even me at this point now, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I've been the same weight since July. I'm working out three hours a day. I eat a th- like 1200 calories and I'm just maintaining and I get so frustrated in that. I'm like, 
I'm maintaining. I have to work this hard to maintain, you know, and, and, and I feel like a lot of people, you know, I do think that for, for women and men, obviously, I think that we are able to see things differently. Now, I, I, of course, the weight issues are always going to be. But with social media, you you do feel like and also there are heavier people on TV. And I think that thanks to, you know, me. No, yeah. <laughs> but I do think like, there's so many more options now. So whereas when I was growing up, I remember I remember, oh, my gosh, I thought of this the other day. I remember telling people that I, I didn't have enough protein in my diet. So I had to drink this drink. Yeah, it was slim fast in a Ziploc bag that I like pretended was something else so that I would drink it at school and be like, oh, I have to drink this medicine. It's so lame. Like my iron, I like iron because it was better to be like, I have iron deficiency than it was to be like, I'm on a diet. Right. So like I would bring slim fast in like a plastic baggie and like pour it in and be like, oh, that'll help, you know? So I think that like there's so much um, shame when it comes to weight and food. You know, I have a lot of friends in AA. I have a lot of friends, you know, in like so many of the programs, but the weight one, like I've even said like, oh, I'd rather go to AA than go to Overeaters Anonymous because like, I don't know, they just seem cooler. And that's like, that's so lame. Like that's so weird. I've never drank in my life, you know, but I think that that's a cooler club to be a part of than so I, I mean, even me, and I'm like totally fine with it, you know, and obviously I'm not, you know. I love that. By the way, how many times do you TikTok, Instagram, Facebook a day? Last year, a lot, because I had nothing else to do. And I will say like, it, it's, it's, and I hate the word triggering. Oh my God, when Gen Z says triggering, I want to vomit. But I will say... I find it all triggering because I that's where I like instantly find my news and then I'm instantly like down a rabbit hole and then I'm like devastated and then I can't get out of it and then I'm like mad at whoever is not mad about it and then I'm like how can you be posting a picture of what you're eating today when someone was just shot like I literally lose my mind so I have been very um I go on I choose my posts and I get off or I hate all my friends. Cause like, there's been days where I was like, are you, if you post anything, that's not like when all the protests began, I was like, if you're posting anything that's not about black lives matter right now, we all have an issue. Like we can't be friends, you know? And, and I was finding myself getting so worked up over someone's silly post with their dog. I was like, I can't with your dog right now, but that's also not, that's not healthy either. You know, that's like, I'm trying to figure out where the medium is. I haven't. So I've been, I will say I have definitely tried to, I'm off of it more just because of that. Cause I get myself so upset. Oh, I love you so much. What, <laughs> what's something about you that the public would be surprised to know? <gasps> um, that probably everyone thinks I'm just like a sweetheart, but I like yell at my child on a daily basis. Like definitely. <laughs> and I've heard that she does. Like a day has not gone by where I haven't lost my, I go from literally like, oh my God, I love you. You're the sweetest thing. I love you're the most important thing in my life to like, oh my God, get out of my face. Like I, <laughs> I get so mad, so fat. Like I go from literally zero to a hundred in 30 seconds, 30 seconds. I like want to like, just push them off a bridge, you know, That's probably awesome. that would surprise people. <laughs> Okay, I'm almost done, but I'm going to give you three words and you give me a one word association. Oh, no. Sex. 
Oh no. Ugh. Who needs it? That's a lot of words. I can't do anything with one word, Susie. I'm like the only person that wasn't asked back on that game show 25 words or less. They literally were like, she cannot be on this show again. Because I can't do anything in 25 words or less. So I'll give you emotional phrases. Sex, ugh, who needs it? Go on, next. Okay. Favorite food. <gasps> oh God, there's so many. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it used to be French fries. It's not, oh, um, um, I would say salt and vinegar chips. Oh, right. Those okay. Are, those are good. Those are really good. Okay. Privilege. Ugh. Uh, that's, yeah. Like born into it, man. That's, but that's the shittiest part. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm going to turn it over to JD for the last question. Yeah, this has been great. It's, it's been a way to really, you know, get to know you. And, and I, I value you taking the time to share your life with us. And uh, my last question is, what does changing the narrative mean to you? It's so like changing the narrative to me would probably best be just, I think that telling the stories and being open to hear the stories and being open to listen to the stories. And I, I mean, I'm someone who I talk way too much, but I will say when I like shut up and just listen to what other people are feeling and going through, I think a lot of people think they know and I have a lot, I have a bunch of friends lately who like when I read what they're posting, I'm like, ah, I get it. I didn't get it. I get it. I have a lot to learn. And I think that changing the narrative for me is probably about listening and really trying to pay attention because I think that I understand it all. I think that I know what's going on. I absolutely can't know what's going on in everybody's homes and everybody's households and everybody's pasts and futures, right? So I think a lot of us need to it's listen to other people's stories, actually. I think that's great. And, you know, look, that's the good thing about social media. You know, I do a lot True. of sharing. Feel free to follow me if you want to know information. Some you want to know and some you don't want to know. But I, I try to make it experiential so people know the story of people of color. Yeah. It's out there. And we can't trust the media to share it because gets it wrong every time and it's a reason you know a lot of the problems exist so i appreciate that and i appreciate your time and i appreciate you thank you so oh, much. thank you so much thank you thank you yeah thank you so much please be sure to like subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts and also leave us a review let us know what you think thank you for listening to change the narrative with jd fuller 